and welcome back to the LB Performance Podcast with me, your host, Lawrence Boren. On today's episode, I'll be speaking to Owen Clarkin, who is the lead strength and conditioning coach for the Arsenal Senior Women's Team, as well as the Irish Under-21 football team. In today's discussion, we cover topics such as Owen's experiences between Ireland and England in regards to strength and conditioning. We touch on his experiences in training male and female footballers. And Owen also provides a little bit of insight when it comes to training the Arsenal and the Irish squad. For me, this was a really, really interesting chat with Owen. For a man at Owen's position to hop onto this podcast and give us his insight as well as his knowledge about the topic was one, hugely appreciated. And secondly, for anyone who's interested in football, training or indeed the topic of strength and conditioning as a whole, this will be a very good listen for you. So without further ado or stalling for that matter, here's Owen. Enjoy the episode, and I'll chat to you guys on the other side. Thanks very much. Owen, welcome to the LB Performance Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Lawrence. Uh, great to be here. How's things going at the moment over where you are in the UK with everything to do with COVID? It's been strange, I suppose, but in a weird way, it's been um, it's becoming normal. We've got kind of lots of protocols and different things uh, at the minute at the club. But no, look, I can't complain. I'm, I'm lucky. I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones to be out working each day and, and getting out of the house, and, and that's what I love to do. So no, it's been, it's, it's. I'm keeping well. Good stuff. What was your? What I'm. This is for for me personally. This is really interesting because when when I was in college doing sports science, the one thing that you hear about consistently is that the availability of sports science positions and strength conditioning positions would be so limited in comparison. Now in Ireland specifically, it would be so limited in comparison to if you were to go over to the UK, America such and such. So for you, what was your pathway to becoming an, a strength and conditioning coach through Ireland and then going to the UK? I suppose, I, d- I don't know if I did it a different way, but I, I probably did to some of the people I've I've met along the way. I started coaching at 16, so, so I'm 30 now, so that's uh, so it's 14 years ago. And I actually started in a kind of tactical, technical role, doing my, my coaching badges um, with the FAI and then later on with uh, my UEFA badges. So I started with my local club, Mount Marion, um, and again, looking after younger kids while still in school, just interesting. And my dad always did it. So he probably inspired me in that way to go on and do, and do some coaching. And I loved it. I think I loved the teaching element of it. I loved showing a kid so, something and seeing how it translated later. And that probably gave me the taste for it. Um, and I continued that until I, I went up and I did my UEFA B throughout the years. But I also had a hunger and a thirst for the kind of physical side of things, the performance side of things. I went and studied that. And while studying, I also got offered a role in UCD under 19s. And it was kind of, I suppose it was like an internship for me under, under a guy called James Timmons, who'd still be very much a friend and a, and a mentor to me now. And he just said, look, he was with the first team in UCD. Could I come in and, and help out week to week? There was no pay but it was a foot in the door for me. Um, so I threw myself at it and it kind of went from there. I, I very quickly, James took on a PhD and within kind of a year or two, I was in with the first team. I was still doing the 19s. The industry was starting to grow and um, we needed more play, more coaches and SNC coaches in with the what became then the 19s, the 17s and eventually ended up with the 15. I think it's, it's right down to 13s now in the League of Ireland. So I brought in um, some people you would know yourself, Stephen Gaffney, mm. Noel Casserly, Aaron O'Connor and kind of oversaw, went from probably being a very junior strength conditioning coach and um, working free in the 19s to a paid role, kind of overseeing a whole football club. And that was a brilliant, brilliant experience for me. From there, I started looking after chemical croaks. Again, James Timmons, another man who, who put me in touch there. And I, I, I did that for two years and that was my first foot into the GAA. And I loved it. And they were a completely different dynamic altogether. Obviously, you've got very elite players playing for free, doing sessions at 6am, doing sessions at 8pm the same day. 
And mm. um, so that was really, really interesting in terms of learning about the culture of GAA, I suppose. Um, on the side, I was running a business called Advanced Athlete Development. You actually did a session or two for me back in the day, which started off as six football players. And we basically saw a niche in, when I say we, it was me and a guy called James Egan at the time. So we saw a niche in the elite footballer market at, at underage um, and academy level, that there wasn't uh, a strength conditioning pathway for them. So we started off with six players and eventually grew that company to, to 60 players. And it ended up being a mix of majority football but we branched into hockey rugby they were our main kind of three sports GAA as well shortly after then completed my masters in, in the kind of meantime while working a couple of different jobs the position came up with Dundalk and I interviewed for it I ended up getting that and then before I knew it I suppose I met Des Ryan at, on my masters spent a bit of time talking to him and kept in touch with him over the years and and a job came up with the Arsenal women's team he he didn't he didn't offer it to me by by any means. He he asked me to interview for it, and I think once you hear the name Arsenal, you can't, yeah, can't it turn my head, and you, yeah. you can't turn it down because I was I suppose I was very happy at Dundalk at the time, and I was very happy with my life at the time. But yeah, it it, it did turn my head, and I, I wanted I wanted a shot at England. I wanted to see what what the environment was like over here. So I moved to England coming up to two years in April. Um, so it's flown by and in the meantime in the last six months I got offered the Ireland under 21's men's job so I've been doing a dual role my full time role here is with Arsenal I do the camps with the Ireland under 21's and the prep around the camps um, and that's been brilliant as well to kind of work for your own country yeah that's pretty much me up until this day the one thing that, that I was, uh, I've always been curious about but I've never gotten an answer to until now Owen um, <laughs> I'm hoping is that whenever you're doing strength and conditioning with an, with an international team as you said you're with the under 20 once with your full-time job being with the domestic club such as Arsenal how does the strength and conditioning in, in strength and conditioning terms how does that actually work when it comes to working with an international squad who you would have such limited time with I mean I imagine maximum you're probably over there for about two weeks when you're home to work with them at best would that be correct in saying I'm very new to the job still and you're right they're very different they're very different but similar job roles with the the international stuff it's you're taking 20 plus players into a squad from potentially 20 different clubs, players that you don't see every day and have contact with every day that have different loading patterns, different history, and you're trying to peak for a game or two games, depending on the camp. It's much more about recovery, about freshness, about your planning has to be on point. I think the key key bits that we try to get right before going into camp are what do the players' loads look like coming into camp? How do we plan sessions around that by you know predicting GPS meters or whatever that might look like with the football coaches before they come into camp. The likes of screening on camp is, is very important to, to ensure freshness each day. You're not trying to push fitness levels. You're not trying to create any sort of adaptation. In the international side of things, you've got less contact time to get to know the players even for getting loading and, and different things like that. It, it is quite a different role. On the opposite side of the, the coin, you have, you've got players you spend every day with, you uh, have a lot of contact time with, you spend from pre-season right through um, into the competitive season rehab you're kind of you're doing everything with them so it's very different in that sense it's probably more about creating those that, that adaptation pushing players if i could push you for a bit more detail then when you were talking when you with the, when specifically with the irish setup you were talking about screening uh, and then the second thing i wanted you to ask you about was where you get the data from for the players as far as the kind of the load management is concerned so the first one being where, where what kind of screening would you do then with the irish athletes would would this screening be as soon as they arrive into the international setup or would this be daily or what's the process that's the first question how would we go about getting that data i suppose that's that's a massive part of the role and what was nice about it was i've been on the other side so so where where i sit with arsenal we're creating or developing relationships with the international 
SNCs of, of the country. So I've sat on both sides of the fence is what, what I'm trying to say. Pre-camp, we're trying to get as much data together as we can to see what they do um, on camp from their own screening data plus their GPS. Um, but we also have to create our own norms. So we kind of have to look at it from camp to camp. We do have lots of data because we, we screen them every single day by our match day. Um, and then to answer what, what we do screen, our main tests are we've got a hamstring measure, measure which is an isometric hamstring measure, which we try and tie each one into like a football movement or correlated to something. So, you know, using high speed running as an example in football, that might be something that if if we see a hamstring deficit on a, on a given day, um, we might modify that player's session in terms of their high speed running, or it might just be a modification in terms of some activation work that day. We do an adductor squeeze, which we like to correlate into maybe change of direction, passing, shooting. And again, we try to make modifications if we see red flags. We do a knee to wall, which we probably correlate more to deceleration, jumping, cast flexibility. We do a counter movement jump, which is just looking at overall fatigue, looking at are they recovered. Again, that will tie into things like sprinting, jumping, more explosive actions. Uh, we weigh them each day. We do some hydration testing in terms of we weigh them pre and post training to look for fluid loss. Um, so they'd be our main, that'd be our main battery of tests that we do with the, with the Irish players. We do that right up to, to the match and on match day, we just, we, we leave them off. Uh, for my cell phone, I'd have a, a relatively good idea about what GPS is used for when it comes to monitoring players. But for the listeners who wouldn't have much of an idea about GPS usage in players, specifically with the international setup, then what is the role of GPS when it comes to using it in the international squad we've we've as i said we've got so many players coming in at different fitness levels we might have guys who are only two weeks back from injury we might have guys who have played six 90 minutes since we've last seen them and we might have some guys in between so really using the gps simply put we can look at their workload over that time to see given thresholds and when we get into camp we can try to devise some sort of program that almost ticks the box for everyone it's likely that we'll have to modify some people on camp. So really it gives us an idea of what work have they done before camp or in between seeing us in the last camp and what can we do with them when they come to us. And it just gives, it's a, it's a really easy system to allow us to track their, their, our players' workload, whether they're with us or not with us, uh, live during the week or, as I said, before they get to us on camp. That's probably the easiest way I can put it. Yeah, that's absolutely super. I'm sure that's very helpful for the listeners who are wondering what, what it does exactly. <laughs> Enough about the Irish squad for now. So back to your full-time position with Arsenal. When it comes to high, the high-performance coaching setup in, say, Arsenal, for example, or even just in the UK in general, what does that actually look like? What, say, what coaches do you have in particular positions when it comes to the high-performance setup? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really, really interesting question, I suppose. From a, on the SSC side of things, there's myself and um, another strength coach called Fran Silver. Um, and we've tried to come up with our own kind of high performance, high performance model, I suppose you call it. And um, I suppose the one thing, like the non-negotiables, I think you have to have as a as a staff kind of body is, you've got to have hard workers, you've got to have good people, and and people who are knowledgeable and good at their job. And um, I suppose that that almost creates your your culture when you go in day to day. But we've tried to break it down again into kind of three sections, and I suppose one of the sections is is communication. We looked at that and we kind of broke it down into verbal non-verbal, emotional intelligence and and feedback. And I suppose to touch on those little areas a little bit each day on the emotional intelligence side of things, and it's probably taken a little bit from, from Dale Carnegie's book, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is probably one of my, my favourite books, is to, to be genuinely interested in people, so in your players, to go above and beyond for them, 
to, to add a personal touch and to understand and empathize with them. Um, I think that that builds trust. Feedback, I think, is a massive part of our job, whether it's negative or positive. Um, and I think just, again, like to give praise and be positive, to talk about your own mistakes first, but then to just make sure you do give feedback because as coaches, that's that's one of our biggest jobs. And then on the verbal and nonverbal side of things, listening, like it's such a, an underrated thing, yeah. asking questions on the verbal side, using people's names, smiling, like your kind of basics that we probably don't pick up in our, or some of the courses we do. And then education was, was the next You have me overthinking, oh no, sorry. You have me overthinking. Here I am like, seriously nodding at you with a really straight face on me. <laughs> <Should be. laughs> sorry, go on anyway. <laughs> so the second, second part, I suppose, is education and to educate your players to create buy-in. That's another part of your job. Like we know why we do what we do, but do our players know? And I think you should be able to rationalize everything you do or you probably shouldn't be doing it. But then also to educate yourself. If you want to be elite as an elite practitioner and, and to go back to, to, to run a high performance operation, like you've got to be investing in yourself. You've got to, you know, be reading, educating yourself, listening to listen to podcasts like, like yourself and reflecting, even just employing like a growth mindset, reflecting, reviewing, being able to admit when you've done something wrong and, and kind of improve. And, and then the last and probably the most, I wouldn't say it's the biggest because they're all very big, but are important. Preparation is something that I've learned a lot this year, probably from doing the international stuff even more so. So I think Stuart Lancaster had a nice one where he says, plan it, do it and review it. And I think we've tried to take that into our department as plan your sessions and plan them in advance. Obviously, you're going to do them and then review how you did them. And I think we've tried to make that now part of our daily routine, weekly routine and monthly routine. It makes things easier on a given day. it, It makes it makes things run like clockwork and you know when you haven't done it. Um, and then simple other things like arriving early to set up, you know, don't things last minute because it, it, it eventually comes back on you and, and the players and set targets and deadlines. And that's, again, comes down to you first, but also giving players targets. We tend not to achieve if we don't have, you know, a target or deadline in, in my experience. What is your coaching philosophy then or your coaching model? Something I've been thinking about a lot recently. So take something practical, like a warm up. Just something easy that that we all do day to day or do do a lot of, and I think I think we can all be not guilty, or we can we can all find that we do so many warm ups as, as strength conditioning coaches that you can get tired of your own warm ups and different ways to vary them up, and they can become monotonous. And I think that's that's the worst thing that can happen. So I think you've got to really have some sort of process. I think the ramp warm up is the classic kind of raise, activate, mobilize, potentiate, or perform, whatever you want, whichever way you want to put it, but. To go beyond the, the physiological side of it, I think, again, another model we've come up with as a department is using the, the deliberate practice model of Nick Wiggleman's book was probably one of the influences and the book Peak were the two books that kind of made me tie this into everything I do now. So if I use the example, I go through these as have a goal, have focus, feedback, a challenge. So if I use the example of a warm up, your goal might be deceleration, your focus might be and again keeping it the one focus getting low or it might be a cue uh, your feedback might be a cue it might be gps data and um, if you're doing max speed run, running but something that you're giving feedback back to the player a challenge might be a race it might be something that takes them out of their comfort zone so again going, going into that kind of goldilocks theory of we need to go into out of our comfort zone to grow we might bring that into our warm-up the other little bits to tie that up is add novelty even if it's something as simple as adding poles into your warm-up, uh, being a little bit more vocal when you're not usually that vocal or the other way around. What part of the pitch you warm in up to, we try to add novelty to each warm-up as much as we can. And again, another one is to finish it up is, is context. 
being specific to that player and that athlete. So why are they doing a lateral shuffle, shuffle into a linear sprint? Again, we know as coaches, but putting that into their language, a centre half has to shift across in the game and suddenly make a run because the runners went in behind them. Trying to give them back as much football language, in my case, as, as possible, will, will create that, that buy-in to why they're doing it. And then flow is so important. Players shouldn't be standing around. Sometimes, yes, the sessions has got to slow for a bit for certain exercises, and, and that's probably our kind of area. They tend to be those type of exercises. You know, players will tell you after a good session that it flowed well. They move from station to station. So, so trying to create that in your in your warm-up. And then I suppose to finish up is using the coaching process. And again, I probably robbed this one from from Nick Winkleman, but also probably from some of my UEFA badges. Probably it's quite similar. His models to describe it, demonstrate it, cue it, and specifically external cue it. Do it and debrief it. And the only one I'd probably add to that, and he, you could probably argue that it's in there, but to observe and analyze. So watch um, step back you don't always need to be talking be silent when you need to and observe and, and try to use your coaching eye that's probably my coaching model I suppose in a, in a nutshell how like how long in advance would you have to pre-plan one session I think you you probably look at it as an overview first so yes. you're probably planning out your week the week before you're probably planning out your month or a two month block realistically going back if you go if you go right out you're planning your year you're planning them into blocks and you're going right back but for a specific session really I'm usually doing it that week or I'm doing it the day before but I'll know what the theme is so it's not like of course if it's yeah. acceleration you're just planning how you're going to put that together um, I, I suppose you're not you're not changing things you've got an overall plan why you're doing things you're 100% right. I agree with you on that as well, because even when, if, oddly enough, I'm, I'm actually doing the same master's degree now that you did. And one of the big things that they spoke about when it came to periodization was indeed, you oh, you pretty much do the overview of the entire season, exactly as you said. And then you start breaking it down then into different into different cycles and different blocks. But like mm-hmm. that, you have to, you have to be obviously open to changing the program, being flexible, I think the term that they use was auto-regulation when it came to that. And that was basically just to stay as flexible as possible. One of their favorite terms. Do you find like, can you give me an example of how do you need to be flexible when it comes to changing your program last minute? And would it be say, for example, this is going to be awfully specific now, would it be something say on the day that you have to change it? Or would it be something like say a couple of days in advance that you'd know about that you have to change it then? Would you be able to give me an example on that? It's probably a little bit less for the S&C coach in, in this sense, but player numbers, you know, you, you pick up an injury in a game, you've got training two days later, that's going to change your numbers. So that, sure. that probably, I think the numbers probably falls more on a technical coach, but you might be playing, it might be fatigue. You might see trends across the team that they're tired if you've got a certain type of intense activity planned that might need to be adapted, someone might pick up a small knock or a strain on the pitch before going into the gym. And then you're, you're trying to work around a muscle group or a joint to offload that, but also give them a you know a little strength dose in the gym. So it's probably plenty of different, it, it happens a lot. And I think, yeah, again, just adapting like little things like that and rehab, you probably learn that a lot. And when, when, when someone has a, a certain type of injury that you have to offload that leg but keep them strong or keep them fit when when you you were saying obviously you were working with Dundalk before and I believe you had good success there towards the end was it the two with two two trophies that you won in your last season there yeah yeah um, that must have been some season for you <laughs> no it was brilliant it was brilliant yeah had great times there and when you switched over then to Arsenal did you find what were there any kind of initial challenges or experiences that you found when you switched from a men's team to a women's team? The initial ones that probably pop up are physio- physiological ones that you've got to look at, such as the prevalence of ACL in the women's game is is, is higher, so that would tie into 
different types of training, which you probably already do. You do it with the with the men's, but a little bit more focus on stability, landing mechanics, um, deceleration training. You've obviously got the female athlete triad, which is calorie calorie imbalance can can cause issues with things like bone density. So looking at fueling strategies will be quite important on that on that side of things. Um, and again, that probably crosses more into our nutritional department, the menstrual cycle. And again, it's something that's probably new and there's a lot more research coming out about now. And we only really attack it from a from a nutritional end. Um, our physio Rose Glenn Glendinning put a really good um, um sure. a really good PDF together for the girls kind of more nutritional strategies in different phases of the menstrual cycle, which are based around kind of inflammatory foods and depending on different stages and yeah, different nutritional interventions. But the the one that really stuck out for me on the floor, I suppose, was the amount of questions the women asked over, over the men. They tended to ask why a lot more. I do tend to ask why a lot more in my experience. And they want to know why they do what they do. Whereas you'll find with men, not I think firstly to say, all athletes are individual. You've got 20 something different personalities within a team. Exactly. Um, yeah. first and foremost. So, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of it's a lot of men who who in the teams that work who would also ask why tend to overall ask why more, which as a practitioner means you have to rationalize things more, which grows you as a practitioner, in my opinion. So we almost try and be a bit more proactive about it now and start to explain the why before we do a new mode of training or whatever that is. Um, but look, it still comes and it's uh, you got to embrace it and, and be open open to it and don't look at it as a negative challenge. Look at it as they want to learn, they want to know why. And when they know why, one thing I've noticed is there's a massive, um, there's, a, there's a lot more buy-in to what we're doing. How much time would you spend with the nutritionists and the physios uh, within the coaching setup there? We'd spend a lot of time with the physios. I suppose we, we have contact time every morning. We've got meetings every morning. We've got some meetings on certain days. We tend to tie in a lot with them from a rehab point of view. We do a lot of the SNCs, do a lot of the on pitch return to play, anything that falls into our kind of category in the gym. We we tend to actually try and coach if we can be there and and do as much as we can there, any sort of conditioning work, even if it's off the conditioning early early stages. We try to be as involved as possible in the whole process. And I think that means that our relationship with the physios is, is a really important one. Hmm. Um, and communication lines need to be open and, and regular on the nutritional side of things we've got um, a woman called Steph Ridley she's, she's brilliant but it's it's newer it's not as full time at the minute we, she's not in sight with us every day so we've got to be a little bit more structured with how we do things we've got to prioritise certain players at certain times of the season who need it whether that's body composition whether that's fueling whether that's recovery so our time I suppose is less quantity more quality can we ch- we check in every week of course but we don't have that day to day contact that naturally comes with with the physios I suppose so, so there is a definite difference there but it's working at the moment and then when it comes to the competitive times of the season what baffles me the most and this is conversation has been brought up an awful lot recently with the likes of say Jurgen Klopp with the Liverpool side the, the the talk about player welfare for all the talk about player welfare in the world I don't want to speak to you specifically about why players should play less games or any of that as a coach it's your role to one I imagine look after recovery but then what I'm really baffled by is with the limited time that you have what do you actually focus on training when your priority realistically should be recovery in between games especially if there's two games a week and there's a quick turnaround how would you structure your training if you say have one or two games a week it's definitely a challenge i suppose this year is a different year for us than last year we had we had the champions league and this year we don't so we've less volume of games straight away so we probably this year are not lucky because we want to be in the champions league but we we have more one one game weeks 
in a two game week I suppose our focus straight away is you mentioned it there is recovery we try to start that recovery process ASAP once once the whistle blows some players might do some specific strength work post game but the players who've played um, significant minutes will try and start that process straight away so it starts with refueling so we'll look at getting um, carbs into them protein into them rehydration then uh, water with electrolytes and then sleep so again we can't we can't be there for that but it's just educating the players around sleep and how much sleep they need and, and I suppose sleep hygiene is probably the word being used at the minute but just emphasizing that and and, and limiting anti-inflammatory foods or drinks alcohol you know and again that's that's an educational piece because ultimately you can't be with the player during those times and you're trusting the player and your program that they'll do the right thing for them uh, in the meantime we get our players in then match day plus one that's just our model but I think sleep nutrition rehydration are your big your big ones but we still try and and have a recovery day and that recovery day kind of looks um, we'll do some foam roll and trigger point work some some players will be in with the masseuse or the physios for for a massage. We'll do a bike flush, just get them moving. Um, we'll do a kind of stretch mobility kind of circuit. Some players like to do ice baths, some don't. We don't push the ones that don't. I have done it before in clubs, but there's probably not the research to back it up to to, to push players. So, so we kind of let them, again, we try to go down the educational route and, and how they feel. Continuation nutritional strategies. So again, re like emphasizing again on the on match day plus one, um, high protein intake, and again that will be devised more by our nutritionists. But we're probably the ones on the floor who are trying to drive it and and, and create the education around it. And then the only other piece that I think I've missed is probably uh, mindfulness. That we we don't again, <clears throat> it's not compulsory, but that mental recovery is important. And some of our players really like the headspace app i don't know if you've used it and they they enjoy that and we we do it sometimes on trips away before games the day of the game or the day before the game we run a we run a little 10 minute kind of mindfulness class i suppose you call it we just stick on the headspace app we're trying to tie it a bit more into our recovery days and we started off again with, with a small group of players but on our trips away we've we found that each trip, we've had more and more players at those sessions. So, so look again. It's not one we force, and it's one that some people believe in, and some people don't, and some people like, and some people don't. We're we're okay with that. And is that part of your philosophy to kind of, as you, aside from education, to kind of give players that freedom to say, "This is what could work. It's up to you to decide then what you want to attend or what you don't want to attend." Yeah, it's a cool question. All right, it it is and it isn't. I think there's you pick your fights. I think, of course, yeah. I think there's there's some things if we if we don't. You know, if we don't have enough research or, or enough evidence to back something up, or if we feel holistically that that person, their match day prep has never involved mindfulness, why should we enforce mindfulness on them now? Because we think it's the right thing to do, or we think there's benefits of it. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that open door approach of letting them come in piece by piece, and th- they might talk to each other then and let it grow naturally and educate them has a better long-term effect. It's easy for us to say, you're all here and we've got 20 players, but does it last? Do they do it when they're by themselves? So I think that's that's probably the argument you have in your head. But if it's a lower session in the gym on a given day during the week, they can't choose whether to go in or not. That's part of their job. That's part of our part of our job. Of course, we'll, we'll adapt within that if they're tired, if, if anything like that, but they've got to be in there. That's part of their job, you know? Brilliant, yeah. You were mentioning as well about after you finish a match and the start of recovery for the players that play a high amount of minutes. For the players that don't, substitutes, reserves, et cetera, et cetera. You were saying that you might do a post-match, uh, was it a strength strength session or something? So we wouldn't go strength session there. So what we do with the players that don't play or play less than 45, we try to give them a high-speed dose straight after the game. 
mm-hmm. um, we're warmed up of course so we'll do kind of so isolated high speed running and the reason for that is we like to do that and then give them recovery between the next big session so we would do it as far as away from our next big session but then we'll also run like a, a non-playing group session the next day, which is a little bit more football focused, more football fitness, fitness through the game. So we try to get it kind of a, a nice mix. We, we might also add in some conditioning work in that non-playing group the next day and maybe an off off conditioning session at some stage during the week just to get their heart rate in a certain zone. And so we try to come at it from all angles. The, the one area that's probably very difficult to to match is is if a player comes on for 10, 20 minutes, it's very hard to replace the 10K that you get in the game. So that total distance is, is quite is quite tough to, to to bridge the gap on, but we're fairly confident in, you know, matching the amount of touches they get in the ball, the football side of things that they get in training the next day. We'll try to give them a dose of high-speed running that would be their match load on, on that same day with that kind of lower intensity total distance, which mm-hmm. you could potentially argue that they just go for, go for a walk that day as well. But that is that that volume is hard to get in yeah, for those players. The overall goal then really is is to do what exactly when it comes to supplementation of you know speed work with players after matches? Is that just to put everyone onto like a level playing field to start the recovery, as you said, game day plus one and then work your way through the week? Uh, what is the actual purpose behind it? The idea is after the matches to give them, so we'd, we'd look at their, we'd know their GPS loads that they'd normally perform in a game and we try to give them that full amount of high-speed running because you can probably kick that off in a 10 minute block by just giving them longer kind of runs so so that's it is so straight away we know that our players who haven't played have matched their high speed running meters that they would have if they played 90 minutes roughly or in around it and then the next day is more looking at that more football fitness so whether that's touches multi-directional movements small sided games uh, looking at time in the red zone so yeah we, we feel that we can match most of that stuff but it's quite difficult to get the total distance of that 10k that you would get in the game course yeah okay no that's that's super oh and that's brilliant that's a huge amount of information like a wealth of it you're after giving us and the, for me and the listeners all together uh, to finish up every episode on, on my instagram story every week i'd like to get a range of questions from the listeners to ask the guest speaker now obviously with you being involved in arsenal and then having the experiences on dundalk i've gotten a few questions in for you and the first question i have for you then is what is the breakdown of a strength and conditioning program for a football player and then Part two of that, what does a typical week look like? I'll run into our typical week and, and kind of go from there. So perfect. Yep. Super. Um I'll start with a game. If we had a game on the on the Sunday, um, as we just spoke about there, we'll we'll tend to recover on the on the Monday for players who played those significant minutes. For other players, they'll obviously have a have a session. They'll be out in the pitch doing that session we spoke about, plus they'll go in and do an extra extra dose of gym work that day while the others focus on recovery. We we give them a day off then. After so much like plus two, we'll give them a day off. So they're at completely out of the building. Uh, mental switch off as well. Then they'll come in and, and we've got what we call an intensive day. I think most people will, will, will call it the same or most, most teams will. An intensive day for us is basically everything is done in smaller areas. So smaller grids, it's probably a bit more multi-directional, a bit more XL, D-cell in shorter areas. And we tend to, as as practitioners in the SC side of things, we'll focus on, in our prep work pre, pre-gym, we'll focus more on 
stability work, landing mechanics, um, because again, they're going to do a lot of deceleration work uh, within that session. So we need to prep them for that. And we'll also, we'll also, they'll also have a upper session in the afternoon. And with the female players, we tend to do more probably unilateral work, focus on stability, trunk work. Then we, with the next day, we'll have an extensive day, which is the opposite of our intensive day, which is more bigger areas. So bigger games, 11v11s, 10v10s, bigger possession games more high-speed running, so probably a bit more calf, hamstring dominant. So again, our prep in the morning will focus around prepping them for that session and looking at kind of more high-intensity plyometric work, isometric hamstring work, just again, making sure those those muscles are ready and primed to go out on the pitch. We do um, some power work pre-pitch, some loaded jumps before they go out. And then they'll have their food and, and come back in and they'll do a, a lower body strength session, which will all be on individual plans based on, on kind of testing or positional or just more of a holistic measure of who they are, what they've done before, what they like to do. Not that they'll dictate their program, but but they will play a part in it. You know, if they like a split squat over a step up or something, uh, two similar movements, we're, we're very happy for them to to perform that lift and that creates buy-in again. Match day minus two was the day off. Recover from those two kind of big days. Match day minus one, we come in, it's a very light session and then we, we, we're back in, we're back into the Sunday and it's a, it's a single session. It's There's no gym on the match day minus one. Our Thursday, a match day minus three ends up as our biggest session of the week and using those bigger areas. So does that answer your question? Absolutely. Side question to that that I just thought of. If you have a match day, say in the evening time, do you guys do anything in the morning to kind of break up the day a bit? Um, if we're if we're at home, we tend to just have a normal routine. We meet a certain amount of hours before the game. It's a similar kind of setup each time. If we're away and we're in a hotel, um, we just have a, we have a basic enough routine, which would consist of getting them moving at some stage during the day. So taking them out for a team walk, which probably acts as a team activity um, where they're together. They tend to have a bit of fun, get a bit of fresh air, get them moving. Um, and we'll, we'll also put on like an optional stretch slash uh, mindfulness session again that day, again, numbers have grown over time but people have their own routines and if you don't want them having to do different things when they're away in a hotel and a home when they're playing at home so really the walk is compulsory because we want the team together for it to ensure that they're not sitting in the hotel for the whole day and that they get moving but we leave the stretch and the the mindfulness on the on the match day as an as an optional Brilliant. Okay, super. The second question for you then, um, is there any fond memories of being a strength and conditioning coach over the years? Yes, a lot. A, a lot of ups and downs, I'd say. I think the nature of, of first team football anyway is is ups and downs. It's it's like a roller coaster. The highs are highs and the lows are low. But there's a few probably that stick out. The biggest one most recently is probably representing Ireland. I wasn't good enough to do it as a player. So it's 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 nice to be able to do it as a coach. And, and I think when that came around... I was just going to do anything to try and be able to fulfill the role because, um, yeah, it's just an honour. I'm, I'm a proud Irish man, and um, it was it was a real honour for me and my family to to be able to do that and to still be able to be doing it. Other ones would be Dundalk, the experience of of winning titles. With it, not that you win them yourself personally, but just being part of that group. There's a really special group of of players, and um, there's a great there's a great culture within the team. Some really good pros and good people staff and players and and to then go and win domestic double that last year there and and the experience to, to the Europa League was amazing as well to, to travel in Europe and you know that, that was, they were first experiences for me with Arsenal it's it's been I suppose there's been highs in the sense of learning my trade and developing as a practitioner over here I really feel I've developed 
that side of things. Um, but I suppose I came in when they won the title, so I didn't really feel fully part of it. But it was still a great occasion to be there. And then the Champions League to, to compete in the Champions League and get to the quarterfinal of the Champions League was was disappointing to be knocked out. Just just great experiences, different traveling different parts of Europe. And then I think overall, as a collective, I just I enjoy my job. I love it. As I said, it's ups and downs, but I think what keeps me in it is is developing players um, or trying to develop players and building close connections with staff and players. And and that doesn't matter really. I mean, I love being in the elite game. I love being in first-team football. But I also loved when I started with, with Mount Marion at under sixes. I loved when I worked in a school or advanced athlete development, working with some elite and, and, and non-elite players. I just really enjoyed watching and helping players and people to get better. I could tell that, I could tell that myself as well, Owen. I mean, and the full credit to you as well. When when I was, as you said earlier, I I did a few I did a few sessions for you, and you were obviously in charge of um, advanced athlete development. And even on the days that you had me coaching, you still came up majority of the time just to check in on the players, just to even chat to them. You didn't even take over the session. You let me do my thing. You let the other coaches do their thing. But ultimately, you came up and you just had a chat with the, the players and. I think that stands to you and I don't, not even as a business owner, but just as a coach alone and as a person, people, athletes love coaches like that, especially my own experience. And the coach is there for you. Is that one, a role model? And then secondly, to know that the coach is actually invested in you, is interested in what you do, is interested in how you're feeling, how you're performing, how, how did the weekend go for you for the match? Everything. It's just, it's so wholesome to have a coach like that on board. So I imagine with absolutely no doubt that you're, you've brought that across to Arsenal and the women's team are, and Arsenal in general are obviously very lucky to have you. Lastly, this is a question that was actually sent to me completely randomly. And I think you might get a kick out of this. Um, so the question here is, can Owen confirm if a particular childhood friend taught him all he knows about football? And secondly, can you guess who that was? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's difficult now. Oh, no. I, I can guess who it is. I yeah, go on. Ian Harding. No, go again. Ah, Andrew Woods. Yes, spot on. Correct. Had to be one of those two. <laughs> to, yeah, exactly. He, That's do you know funny. what it was? I, um, Andrew uh, messaged me earlier on Instagram. Now, again, this is on my own personal page and I have a private. So I just got this random <laughs> got this random request off someone. I was like, who is this guy? Like, I mean, I just put up the post about the, the, the podcast recording tonight. This guy messages me. And he just said, listen, can you ask him this question? I'm sure he'll get a great crack out of it. He's an absolute boss, so credit to him. <laughs> sounds sounds like Woodsy, all right? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it does. Ah, that's good. That's but good. listen, right. Owen, that was an absolutely brilliant episode. I mean, the only thing I can say is I, I kind of despise the fact I didn't have you on sooner, <laughs> to be totally honest with you. All the information you gave was just absolutely super, along with the other two guests I've had on. But thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much for having me on, Lawrence, and, and the very best luck with the podcast. And that concludes episode three of the LB Performance Podcast. Thank you so much to Owen for hopping on and providing that insight and information. Needless to say, on my part, it was very interesting and extremely helpful for me. I'd love to hear what you guys think about the episode, so if you do want to get in touch, use the contact details that Ari will provide you next. The one thing that I forgot to ask Owen during the interview was about his contact details, if he was welcoming contact. The good news is that he is. If you're on Twitter, that's where you'll find him. His Twitter name is at Owen Clarkin, so it's at... E-O-I-N-C-L-A-R-K-I-N. Thanks again to Owen. Do consider subscribing on your respective podcast apps or indeed wherever you do get your podcasts. Review, rate, subscribe, all that good stuff. And I'll chat to you guys in the next episode. Thanks very much.
If you want to talk to my daddy, go and e- email and Instagram. His Instagram is lbbeformance and his email is coach at lbbeformance.ie. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.